Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. That's you guys. My friends, we are in Proverbs 11 today. Proverbs chapter 11. We, uh, we left off a third or two-thirds of the way through the chapter, so we'll just pick up where we left off in verse 22. Our last time together we looked at verse 21, and I, w- I just want to pray for our time. Father, we, uh, we know that this is a, uh, a holy book. It is a book altogether different than any other uh, piece of literature that we might pick up. Even books about this book pale in comparison. And Father, uh, you've made your word known to us. You've revealed your will to us. And so, Lord, that's exactly what we're asking. Lord, open up our eyes to see and to understand this morning that which the Spirit is saying to this church. And so bless our time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we left off in Proverbs 11. We're in a section of the book where pretty much if you, if you do jump in, you've missed a study, you can pretty much pick it up because every verse is somewhat unique to itself. And so that, I guess, in some senses, that, that, that works out fortunate for us if, if you haven't been here. If you look at Proverbs chapter 11, verse 22, where we'll start today, it's an interesting proverb. Uh, some of them more colorful than others. This one says, like a gold ring in a, pink, in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Now, certainly gold rings are very lovely. Pig snouts, not so much. All right, gold rings, very lovely. Pig snouts, not so much. And remember, this is written in a Jewish context. So some of us might look at pigs and be like, oh, how cute, you know, the little piggy or whatever it may be. Not the Jewish people. For the Jewish people, the pig was especially repugnant. It was an unclean animal. You remember the story of the prodigal that went wandering off, and that's told to us in the Gospels. Uh, it's a story. It's not a true story. It's a parable there of the prodigal going wandering off. And to drive the point home of how far this young Jewish man wandered away, we see that he's working amongst the pigs and desiring the food that the pigs eat. The pig was especially repugnant to the Jew. And of course, the pig is not the best looker in the animal kingdom. Some animals are just ugly. Some are cute, but some are really ugly. Camels, for instance, are ugly beasts or whatever. And pigs are not the best lookers in the animal kingdom. But specifically for the Jew, it was a Levitically unclean animal as well. And so not only is a gold ring pretty opposite from a pig's snout, But this idea that a pig would be repulsive to the Jew also fits in. And what Solomon is doing is he's putting two incongruous things together as much as he possibly can. The snout, and in this case, the ring. The snout is altogether unlovely. The ring is altogether lovely. And he's choosing this unlikely comparison for the purpose of setting before us as opposite a comparison as he can think of. So a ring of gold is beautiful and it is valuable, but in the snout of a pig, it's just quite simply out of place. Again, the ring of gold is beautiful and it's very valuable, but in the snout of a pig, it's just out of place. And thus, its value then is essentially lost by being there in the snout of the pig. You you think of a pig rolling around in the mud, that's not a creature that you'd want to follow or embrace in particular, right? Even if it does have a gold ring, in its snout. So what's our application? Well, I assume we all agree that you put the ring together and the snout together, and those two don't necessarily go together. But what's his point? And his point is as as opposite 
as a beautiful ring is to a pig snout, so too is, a, is beauty to a woman that lacks discretion. So that may be a good-looking ring. You might look at that ring and say, wow, look at it. That is beautiful. I've never seen gold glimmer like that. Maybe it has a diamond in it. I've never seen a diamond so big as that. But in the pig's snout, you'll be turned off. Similarly, or in the same way, so too is beauty to a woman that lacks discretion. Now, the Bible doesn't make any statements against personal beauty, as if it's a thing to be despised or anything like that. There's nothing wrong with being attractive. It's a burden that I've borne for very long. (laughs) So there's nothing wrong with being attractive and even taking steps toward being attractive. So go and get your hair cut. Take appropriate measures of personal grooming. Pay special attention to the way you physically present yourself. There's nothing wrong necessarily with those things. The problem is this. Too often, physical appearance becomes our chief concern as men and women and as young people. And too often, even in the relationships that we pursue with others, dating relationships, friendship relationships, for instance, even in those relationships that we pursue, physical appearance of the person that we're pursuing pretty much becomes all that we are considering. And so, you know, if you look at the dating sites that are on there, many of those sites start with looks. And you just keep flicking until I find someone that's good looking and I'd like to stand next to. And then I'll look into what kind of a person they are. And I imagine you care what kind of a person they are. But what does that demonstrate? It demonstrates what's primarily important is the the looks, is the attraction. And Solomon's point in this verse is simply this. Even the best looker on the planet, boy, he or she is good looking, loses a bit of their luster if they do not have an inner beauty that goes along with that outer beauty. Even the best looker on the planet loses a bit of their luster if they do not have an inner beauty that goes along with the outer beauty. Goldman Sachs recently estimated, this is in 2016, that the beauty industry in America, and by that they only took hair products, skincare products, makeup, and perfumes. And so there's plenty of other things that go into, you know, our beauty and so on. But they took those four things and they estimated that the beauty industry in America in 2016 grossed $95 billion in the beauty industry in just those areas. And you throw in all the other beauty-related goods and services that are not included in those four that I mentioned to you. And the amount then, then soars into the hundreds of billions of dollars. Imagine. Imagine if our nation spent $100 billion or more a year on character development and personal growth each year. Just imagine what kind of people we would be if we were as focused on our inner beauty as we are as a nation on our outer beauty. And throughout our study of Proverbs, what Solomon has been doing is he's been trying to direct us to be wise in the decisions that we make and the things that we allow ourselves to pursue. What are you running after? That's what Solomon, that's the question he is asking throughout our study here is, what are you running after? What are you pursuing? And then his next question would be, regardless of what our answer is, his next question would be, why? Why are you going after that? And so for many, they run after beauty. And and we saw riches. Many people run after riches. Solomon says here essentially, look, riches are fine, but they're temporal at best. You have to pursue something that's going to last beyond the grave. We've had that message a number of times in our study of the book of Proverbs. We saw last week power, authority, influence. All of those things are fine. 
But if those things are not obtained in a way that is honorable to God, in a way that he can smile down upon and bless, what we learned last week is those things are simply deceptive wages. We think we're getting ahead. We think, wow, I'm getting everything I want. But then when we finally do get a grasp of those things, there's nothing to those things. So Solomon says, look, it's fool's gold. They don't last. And his response to that is pursue something that does something that will last beyond the grave. And so here we have this idea of personal outer beauty. It's fine. But unless that beauty is coupled with an inner beauty, it's actually quite repugnant. Because what happens is there's this attractive person and you're drawn to that person. And then once you get to know them a little bit, you want to get away from them as quickly as you possibly can. And sadly, some people say, you know what, I can put up with all of the the craziness, the wackiness, the selfishness, the arrogance. I could put up with all of that as long as I have someone beautiful hanging on my arm. And those people go on to be miserable people. Solomon says, pursue that beauty which stands the test of time and lives on for eternity. And that's not a physical beauty. Even the best-looking people. I was looking at Robert Redford. Remember Robert Redford? He's a good-looking fellow, wouldn't you say, in his day? Ken, would you agree? No comment, no comment. Well, I understand that Robert Redford was a good-looking fella in his day. Have you seen him lately? He's okay, but he's getting older, and that's what happens. Even the very best-looking people, gradually as time goes on, they're not going to be the very best-looking people in society. And so you must pursue something that's going to last beyond even the aging process here on the earth, and certainly into eternity. Now, the particular trait that Solomon suggests that this beautiful woman should go after, or that you and I should go after, the particular trait here is discretion. And discretion speaks of the decision that a person, the decisions that a person makes and the judgments that a person demonstrates in making those decisions. And six different times in the book of Proverbs, we are introduced to this idea of discretion or sound judgment. And so it's something that Solomon comes back to consistently, six times in the 30 chapters or so. He's speaking of the man or woman, the man or woman of wisdom is one that makes decisions based on different information than the man or woman without wisdom. So the man or woman without wisdom, the fool, the Bible calls that person, they go after perhaps whatever feels good in the moment. But the wise person looks forward beyond the temporal, how am I going to feel right this moment, how am I going to feel in a week from now, looks beyond that ultimately into the eternal. The fool, for instance, is concerned primarily and only typically with how this will benefit them and how this decision will bring satisfaction to them. But as we've been seeing, the wise individual takes into account and ultimately seeks to bring pleasure to God and to other people. That's a very different way of approaching things between the person of wisdom and the the fool, the wise person and the fool, because what the wise person does is exercises discretion while the fool is indiscriminate in their decisions. Solomon says, be people of discretion. Be people that are wise. Use sound judgment in the decisions you're making. Make decisions that live beyond the temporal and can even live on into the eternal. And that's how a person will develop not only perhaps an outer beauty, but an inner beauty as well. And that's what he tells us to pursue. Amen? All right. Verse 23. 
It says, now the desire of the righteous ends only in good, the expectation of the wicked in wrath. Now when a person begins a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, through his son Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches us, we know this, that that person now has a new nature. They're imparted with a new nature. And what that simply means is that the heart of God, the desires of God, the inclinations of God, the longings of God, become that person's heart. Now, of course, we know we still have our old nature. We still want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. We don't want to be told by other people. We still have that old nature, but we also now have a new nature, a new man that wants what God wants when God wants it, complete opposite of our old nature. And the more we submit to the desires of God in our lives, and the more we put down our own longings, the more we will grow spiritually. That's just the way it is. So you have a, before you knew Christ, you didn't even have a desire to honor Christ or obey Christ, and certainly not the power within you to do so. But now that you do, you have these dueling natures. And as somebody once said, you know, who, who's going to win the battle? Well, the one you feed the more. And so if you feed your flesh and you always give in to selfishness and selfish desires, your selfish flesh is going to win out. But if you continually submit yourself to the longings of God and the desires of God, well, that man is going to win out. And you'll begin to grow spiritually. And you'll begin to radically change. What's one of the most exciting things is you may not notice it. But you go to a high school reunion or you get together with some folks you haven't seen in a year or two. And suddenly people are going to start saying things to you like, you know, you're different. What's been going on in your life? You may not notice the change that God is bringing about in you, but other people will. And it won't be an outer thing. It'll be an inner thing. And so here, Solomon, he alludes to some things in verse 23. He says, the desire of the righteous ends only in good, the expectation of the wicked in wrath. Solomon alludes to this idea that as God begins to change us, he doesn't just change the things we do, but he even changes our very desires. He even changes our very desires. That is the things we are thinking about doing. What's he doing? He's changing you from the inside out. And suddenly your goals in life are altogether different. Now you really desire, how can I bring the Lord pleasure? What can I pursue today that will cause God to smile down upon me, his blessing? How can I be a blessing to God and to other people? That begins now internally to become your desire as you are walking with the Lord. And as we are reminded, it's a familiar verse. The psalmist said this, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so what is God doing? He's changing your heart. He's changing your desires. He's making you long for his things and no longer your own. And when your desire becomes God's desire, you can be assured that that desire will come to pass. And the reason why you can be assured is because this verse says it, the one that we're considering here. And so then I think it's a helpful process from time to time. Maybe one time you have a little bit more time on a, in your quiet time this weekend. You know, I was off on Friday, so I had a little more time than normal uh, this week. And so that allows sometimes in your quiet time, you go a little bit deeper than maybe, you know, you're rushing to get out of the house. And so next time you have a little bit of time, or make a little bit of time, take inventory. Ask yourself some questions. Allow the Lord to search some, th- some things out. And from time to time, I think a good question is this. What am I really longing for, and why is that the thing I want so badly? I think it's a really valuable question for all of ourselves to ask ourselves. What am I really longing for, and why do I want that so badly? 
I think it's a pretty universal principle that the things we pursue are typically, typically the things we acquire, right? If that's really what you're going after, that's usually what you get. And so then the question is, what are we pursuing? What is my life goal? What am I really building my life on? What do I wake up thinking about and spend my day racing after? These are questions we can ask to take some inventory of our lives and allow the Lord to search out our lives. And then as he does, he says, well, I notice you're really running after retirement, Greg. You're really running after that house on the beach where you can sit and do nothing, Greg. That's what you're running after. Then I ask myself, okay, why? Why am I running after that? Why am I pursuing that with all that I have, that everything in my life is funneled toward that particular thing? And then the Lord will begin to show some things to me. And as he does, then I submit myself. Some of us, it might be, I just want a mate. I want to find a mate. Everything in my life is about a mate. And then the Lord's going to say, why is that all you're after? Why is that the chief passion of your heart? And then you begin to talk that through with the Lord, and he begins to reveal some things that are going on in your heart. And then what do you do? You submit that to him. You say, you know what, Lord, you're right. You tell me that I should love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, and all my strength, when in reality, I'm loving something else with all my heart, all my mind, and all my strength. Lord, I submit that to you. And as that one fellow said, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Lord, I submit, but help me in my, is unsubmission a word? I don't think that is a word, but help me in that. Yeah, we made it up. And then you can ask the Lord, Lord, you know what? I have a lot of temporal longings. I've gotten very comfortable here on the earth. And so, Lord, I ask, take those longings, take those pursuits, and replace them with something that will last far longer. And do you think that's a prayer that the Lord is interested in answering? Absolutely. Anything, you ask anything according to his will, and you have it, the scripture says. That, we know for sure, is according to his will. I've been praying for a beach house for me. My wife and I and our kids, we have a beach house right there. I've been praying for it. The Lord hasn't given it to me. So apparently that's not according to his will. Because you know what? I probably wouldn't see you many Sundays. (laughs) I'd be out at the beach. You know what I mean? And so at least for the time being, this is what the Lord has for us. Praise the Lord. Anyway. But if you wanted to loan me Monday through Friday, your beach house, I could take it. All right, so anyway, ask the Lord, Lord, replace my temporal longings with eternal longings. And God will begin doing that work. And again, as he reveals things and you seek to submit them, ask him for his strength to submit those to the Lord. And the Lord will come alongside and give you the strength. Amen, friends? All right, good stuff. Verse 24. It says, now one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers one. Somebody once called this the glorious paradox, the glorious paradox. Because it's saying that we actually enrich ourselves not by being stingy, not by greedily holding on to and accumulating and so on, but we actually enrich ourselves by generously giving away of our resources to others. And that's why it's called the glorious paradox because it doesn't make any sense. How are you going to enrich yourself If you don't hoard it up, if you don't store it up, if you don't gather it up, how are you actually going to enrich yourself if you keep giving it away? How can I grow richer while giving away my riches? And how is it that one that holds on to his riches 
so that he or she will have plenty. Conversely, in the process, as the verse says, of hoarding actually grows more and more needy. It's a paradox. It's not logical, and it does not make sense. And so it's a concept that requires faith and trust in order to receive, if you will. And so simply, will you accept God at his word regarding this statement? Or, as we're prone to do, will we instead rely on our own understanding and disregard this? Will we say, no, 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 I got to prepare for my future. I got to build up my bank account. I got to go after that goal. And it's going to cost me this to get there. And so everything is on hold until that is taken care of. That's relying on your own understanding. It's essentially saying, yes, I understand what your word says, Lord, but I'm going to go a different direction. But thank you for your insight. That's essentially what it's saying here. Now, whether we're talking about giving our finances or giving our time or giving our affections, look, I, I got enough friends. I can't, I can't invite another person in for my affections. Some people cut, cut it off. So whether we're talking about money or time or affections, whatever it may be, you and I, this verse tells us, will only be blessed and enriched when we look beyond ourselves and begin to consider other people. So when you are no longer your chief concern, but others become your chief concern, that's when ultimately you'll experience the blessing you're looking for by hoarding it for yourself. It's a glorious paradox. It's the complete opposite of what you would expect. And the paradox is this, that we enrich ourselves not by being stingy, but by being generous here. And so I would encourage you with the scripture, test the Lord in this thing. In the book of Malachi, it's referencing giving of your tithe. But I think this applies again to your, not only your resources, but your time, your affection, other things as well. But this is what it says in the book of Malachi. It says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test. Can you believe the Lord says that? He says, put me to the test in this matter and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And I think truly the more we understand this principle of the glorious paradox of being generous and the Lord bringing back a blessing upon us, the, the more we understand it, the more we will act on it. The more we act on it, the more we will understand it. And so it takes a level of faith. It takes saying, you know what, Lord, I'm a busy person, but I'm still going to give two hours of my week to serve other people. Lord, I don't have all of the resources I would like in my bank account, but I'm still going to honor you by giving to the needs of other people, et cetera, et cetera. And the Lord says, test me in this. Solomon, he'll, he'll go on. It's a similar idea. He says in verse 25, whoever brings blessing will be enriched and one who waters will himself be watered. The more bountiful we are with others, the more blessed we become. The more generous we are with our time, the more the Lord blesses our time. Our endeavors then become more fruitful. And the thing that I've come to find is they become more productive. I tend to work better and use my time more wisely and work more effectively when I feel like my time is going to be limited, but in this process of being generous, what does the Lord does, do? He blesses our efforts even in the midst of that. William McDonald, he wrote this. William McDonald said, the generous person reaps dividends that the miser can never know. And then another William, William Arnault, he said this. He said, if we be not watering, we are withering. 
If we be not watering, we are withering. There is a blessing in serving other people. Let me give you an example. When a Sunday school teacher prepares diligently and then teaches his or her class, who do you think benefits more from that preparation, the student or the teacher? Now, hopefully they both do. But the the reality is the five-year-old's not getting as much out of it as you are by diligently preparing for it. And if you've ever been in that sort of a circumstance, you begin to realize just how helpful and valuable it is to be a teacher in that sort of circumstance because you realize, man, I'm growing even as I'm preparing to help other people grow. I'm stirred up about who Jesus is and what Jesus did even as I'm trying to prepare a lesson that will stir other people up about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And as the teacher will begin to discover that all of that that they sought to to give out to other people is poured back on them, as it says in the scripture, pressed down and running over. And there's great blessing in that. So as you pour yourself out on behalf of others, watch as the Lord pours himself out in blessing upon you. Amen? Verse 26. It says, the people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Now, there may be a little bit of context here that is left unsaid that would be helpful for ha- perhaps for us to understand this. Notice it says, the people curse him who holds back grain. So picture, if you will, that there's an increasing, increasingly growing food shortage that might be caused by a famine or a war or something like that. And the availability of the resources is increasingly becoming scarce. And that scarcity is slowly driving up the price as those who have money can then begin to afford it and so on. And the resources are growing in demand. In that scenario, Solomon introduces a proverb like this. And he introduces this business person that is holding back his or her grain calculating. The longer I hold it back, can't hold it too long, but the longer I hold this back, when I finally do put it out there on the market, I'll get top dollar for it. While the people are struggling and are are hungry and are pushing and scrounging and saving and selling off dishes in their home to raise some money to go out and get food or whatever, here's this business person that is calculating through the whole process. Solomon says the people curse him who holds back the grain. Now, you might hear this and you say, but that's good business skills. Yeah, it is. It's just bad people skills, all right? It's good business skills, certainly. You are going to get top dollar for it, but it's bad personal skills. Again, William Arnault, he said, your barns may be full, but your heart will be empty. So he who holds in, in times of scarcity holds back his product in order to enrich his or herself. This passage here says they will be despised by the people while the one who sells it freely is loved. And that affection of the people is a far greater blessing than a big bank account ever will be. Some of you aren't sure of that. It is. The scripture says it. And so it is. I can't help but think of Scrooge in Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol. He was the wealthiest man in all of the city, and yet he was despised in every way. And I think that is a testimony to what that verse is teaching. So if you are involved in business in some way, this is a most important principle for you to bring in to your teaching. 
What's going on with all the music today? Yeah. <laughs> if you have a phone, would you kindly break it? <laughs> or just turn it off, please, if you will. Um, so if you're involved in business in some way, it's a most important principle. Solomon makes clear that the blessing will be upon those that consider not just their bottom line, but their customers as well. Not just their bottom line, but their customers as well. And if you are a person that is determined to serve people in your business endeavors, this verse promises us that that service will come back in the form of a blessing to you. Now, if on the other hand, you're a person who's always trying to connive and to scheme so that you can bring yourself the greatest buck possible, you will experience the negative consequences of those decisions. That's what this verse teaches us. So what's the takeaway? Be generous. Be considerate and look to be a blessing to others and God will bless you for doing so. Okay, friends? Verse 27, whoever is diligent, excuse me, whoever diligently seeks good seeks favor, but evil comes to him who searches for it. I think Solomon's word of wisdom here is simply this, that the person that commits themselves to doing good toward others will, re- will receive, excuse me, the favor of others who will then be more inclined to seek your good. So if you desire to seek the good of other people, people will be, think of you favorably and they'll desire to seek your good in return. Conversely, the person who seeks evil is most assuredly going to find that evil. And that, by that, what we mean, if a person continually sets out to wrong others and to take advantage of others and get ahead of other people and so on, don't be surprised when you begin discovering everybody wants to wrong you as well and mistreat you and take advantage of you. Again, a principle we alluded to earlier today, the measure which you have shown is going to be shown back to you. So if you want others to seek your good, a solution, seek their good, and it'll come back to you. Verse 28 of Proverbs 11 says, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Now, riches, we know, are uncertain. And therefore, since they are uncertain, they're not worthy of your total trust. I'm sure you've read about the Great Depression and most people's riches was in paper, certainly. But it was their bank account, their little book. And so they went down to the bank and the, the lady, I don't know if they did this back then. Richie, you might know, 1929, um, you may recall. Just teasing. I'm sorry, I'm sure you were. But you have your little book and your little book tells you you have $1,000 or $10,000. And so you take it out and you look at it all the time. And you begin to trust. And the higher it is, the more certain you fear, feel about your future. And the lower it is, the more concerned you become. And we think that riches are certain. Riches are not certain. And therefore, they're not worthy of our total trust. If you cast all your trust upon your wealth or even your anticipated wealth, if you cast all your trust upon those things, should that wealth disappear, you're in a lot of trouble because you've cast all of your trust upon that thing and everything now you have depended on is gone. Now what are you going to do? So Solomon says here, whoever trusts in riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish, uh, flourish Excuse me, like a green leaf. Now he brings up the flourishing of this green leaf. And in doing so, he paints this picture of a tree whose healthy branches are producing a vibrant foliage. And I think it's a helpful word picture for us here that Solomon brings up because it reminds us of the importance of the branch continually being connected to the root, just as Jesus did in John chapter 15. If that branch is ever going to produce green leaves 
or fruit of some sort, it has to be connected to the root or the trunk or the source, the vine, as Jesus talks about it. And this verse here, this idea, it's a helpful reminder to us to make sure that we're connected to the vine, to the Lord Jesus Christ. But in addition, you can go a step further. Okay, so let's say you do have a branch that is connected to the root, the source, the vine, where all the life is coming from. But let's say that the thorns have been allowed to grow up with it. And they wrap themselves around that branch. And they begin to choke the life of that particular branch out. I think that's where Solomon might be going from this. The thorns, they become this, the sticker bushes, they become invasive and they choke out the life from that particular branch. So even though the branch is connected to the root, the branch isn't getting the life source that it needs to produce the fruit that it it should be producing. And I imagine you're familiar with what I'm thinking of here. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus speaks of a parable and he says that there was a sower who went out into the field to begin to sow some seed. He begins to plant. And he tells, Jesus that is, he tells how the sower sowed some seed amongst the path. So in the process of throwing the seed where he wanted it to go, some of it sowed there right in the path. And he goes on to explain to us that that never sinks down into the ground. It's rock hard. It's almost like cement. And so the birds come and they take the seed and they take it away. None of the seed enters into the ground and thus none of the seed ever produces fruit. Jesus then goes on and he explains that a second portion of the seed was sown on the rocky ground. And like the seed before it, it never was able to really take up root. And thus no fruit was ever produced because as soon as the sun came, it was scorched and it quickly died. Now Jesus then goes on, he talks about a third seed. And this is the one I want to draw your attention to. This seed, he says, was sown among the thorns or sown among the sticker bushes. And the seed, it sinks down into the ground. And growth even begins to take place. If, and, I, and I imagine people could look at it any way they want. But if you look at that parable, I would suggest to you that the first two areas of ground where the seed was sown are unbelievers. They've heard the word of God but never responded. The third one, this one I'm referring to now, the seed that is sown among the thorns, and the next one which was sown in good soil, I would suggest to you are believers. And the reason why is this plan here, it goes down into the ground, it begins to grow up, it is ready to go, but the problem is it can't produce its fruit, it can't thrive as it was meant to because of those thorns, because of the choking. It never develops into that which the sower intended for it to become, and that is a fruit bearer. Now you can go back, you can read it yourselves. It's Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Now, Jesus explains his whole purpose of the parable in Mark chapter 4, verses 10 to 20. And his application specifically for this seed that is, is sown among the thorns, his application is found in verse 19 of the chapter. He says this, And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire, desires for other things enter in choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now, some would say, not a believer. It's not real. I don't think Jesus' point. Jesus' point has to do with fruit. And that's our concern here, is this seed had everything it could possibly need to be fruitful, except the thorns choked it all out. And Jesus explains what they are. What is it that's choking out the life source, if you will, from that little plant? It's the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. 
the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches are able to hinder the fruit of righteousness that God desires to be formed in each of our lives. And so Solomon here, in so many words, he says this, be careful not to trust in your riches because those riches will ultimately fail you. Rather, Solomon is saying, again, in so many words, fix your eyes on the Lord and run hard after him. But what do most people do? They fix their eyes on the bank account and they run hard after it. Solomon is saying, do the exact opposite. Make growing in righteousness your chief goal. Keep yourself guarded from the deceitfulness of riches and refuse to allow anything that's going to enter in that will choke out the abundant, life-producing, fruit-producing life that the Lord desires for each of you. Again, to quote Solomon, he says, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Don't allow anything to enter in that will hinder that flourishing. Amen? Now, verse 29, a couple more verses today. Verse 29 tells us, whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind and the fool will be a servant to the wise of heart. In the 1960s, there was a play that was uh, made into a movie called Inherit the Wind. Not Gone with the Wind, Inherit the Wind. Maybe you've seen it. It was about the the so-called Scopes Monkey Trial. And it starred a fellow named Spencer Tracy. And this is where the title of the movie comes from, this particular verse. Solomon says, whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind. Now, elsewhere in the Proverbs, Solomon will speak about people that trouble their own household. And so in Proverbs 15, 27, he says, whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. And so there, Solomon gives an example of someone that is troubling their own household. Here he just mentions the idea, but there he gives an example of it. And there the example is one that is greedy for unjust gain. And so perhaps that's what Solomon has in mind here in Proverbs chapter 11, as a person that is greedy for unjust gain, or perhaps it's just one of the many things that Solomon has in mind. But the point is simply this, is that the actions and the decisions of one have the ability to impact and trouble an entire household of people. And I I think we can take it a step further, that the the actions and decisions of a few can impact an entire community. The actions or decisions of a few can impact an entire nation. And so here we see that the decisions that we make in our lives are never made in a vacuum, particularly in our families. And throughout the scriptures, we see again and again, entire families affected by the decision of one. Sometimes for good, more often than not, for evil. So we we studied Esther not too long ago. You remember that the decision of Haman, the foolish decision of Haman to do what he did because of the rage and the hate that he had within him, impacted and ultimately destroyed his entire household. We see that strife and animosity continued long after David's sin with Bathsheba in his household. Certainly, we can go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and we can look at our great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, and we see how the entire human race was affected by the decision of our common great-great-grandparents. And how sad it is, then, when a person is willing to cast everything off and everyone aside to go after one, that one thing 
and to acquire that one thing. And so you see the person putting everything aside so they can just get this. This is what I want. And I really don't care who has to be hurt in the process of getting this particular thing. And then once they open up their, their fist, they got it. And they open up their fist, and what did they inherit? The wind. I didn't write it. It's right here. They, they grass and they got air. And then they come to the end of their days. You've seen enough movies, and maybe you've even had the opportunity to be with someone on their deathbed, and they come to the end of their days, and they wish they could do it all over. And now they know, and they realize the error of their ways. This verse here, it reminds me of the Bernie Madoff scandal in the mid to late 2000s, um, 2008 and nine. it came out, and so on. And specifically, the thing that struck me, I recall, is as he was guilty and everyone knew and he was going to go off to jail. I'll tell you the story if you're not familiar. But he was going to go off to jail. His family began asking this question, well, what about us? We've grown accustomed to a certain lifestyle. If you take away all of these funds that he stole from other people, what's going to happen to us? And I remember hearing that. I don't care what happens to you. Your lousy husband and father did what he did. I shouldn't have to worry about you. I wasn't sanctified as much back then, <laughs> apparently. But you may, re- you may or may not be familiar. This fellow, Bernie Madoff, he was operating what was known as a Ponzi scheme. And at, at one particular point in time, uh, that is essentially you're taking some money over here and you're pretending it's over there and everyone sees it and they think, well, there's lots of money and he's borrowing from Peter and all this sort of stuff. And once you start moving, removing dominoes, the whole thing come, comes crashing down. But at one point, at least on paper, the Madoff family was at one time worth over $18 billion. And all of that came crumbling down when the man's scheme was exposed for what it was and he was eventually sentenced to 150 years in prison. And as I was refreshing my memory a bit on, you know, the, the particulars of the, the account, I came across an article in Town and Country magazine. And it chronicles the downfall not only of the elder Madoff, but also of his wife and his two grown sons as well. And the, art, the title of the article was so interesting to me. It was, How Bernie Madoff Took His Family Down. And it goes on and it tells the sad story of the lives of the wife and the two grown sons post-conviction. Now, you should know they did a lot of searching, they being the FBI and all those people, they did a lot of searching to find out if the wife and the sons were involved in this as well, so they could throw them in jail too. And despite all of that effort, they they concluded that the two grown sons and the wife had no idea what dad was doing. And so if you were thinking, I get what they deserve, They had no idea what was going on. They were innocent in the whole process here. And this article, How Bernie Madoff Took His Family Down, it goes on to tell that two years after his father's conviction, Mark Madoff, one of the two grown sons, sadly, the the other grown son died of leukemia uh, or a form of cancer in the process of his dad going to jail. So there's one son remaining, and that son, his name was Mark Madoff, and sadly, he took his own life two years after his dad went to jail. But what is interesting to me is this is what he wrote in his suicide note, which he had mailed to his dad in jail. It says, now you know how you destroyed the lives of your sons by your life of deceit. That's what he told, they told his dad. Madoff's, Mark Madoff, the one who killed himself, the young lawyer, or excuse me, his lawyer, he added these words when speaking about Mark. He said, Mark was an innocent victim of his father's monstrous crime 
who succumbed to two years of unrelenting pressure from false accusations and innuendo. And what, what that simply means is everybody thought he was involved in it. And for two years, everyone treated him as if he was guilty and he finally couldn't take it anymore. And he took his life. But again, those words that he wrote to his dad, now you know how you destroyed the lives of your sons by your life of deceit. Truly, Solomon said, whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, as Bernie Madoff painfully has come to discover. And sadly, too many come to discover this same truth. I'm sure many of of us in this room are all too well familiar with the pain in our lives because of the short-sightedness of a wayward mom or dad. And many of us as children had to deal with some things because mom or dad went wayward in their decision-making or they were greedy for unjust gain. And so simply, as followers of Jesus Christ, may the Lord intervene and stop the cycle with us so we don't have to pass it on to another generation that's going to need to deal with it after us. Amen? Verse 30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. Whoever captures souls is wise. Excuse me. One of the great texts for soul winners uh, in the Bible. This morning as I was reading my email, I came across this from our friend Steve Simpson. Steve Simpson, as you know, spoke here a little while ago with Puma and the work that they're doing in Nepal that some of us have gone over and had an opportunity to visit. And in his uh, email, he quotes Charles Spurgeon this idea of soul winning that the verse talks about. Let me read this to you. It says, do you want arguments for soul winning? Spurgeon says, look up to heaven and ask yourself how sinners can ever reach those harps of gold and learn their everlasting song unless they have someone to tell them of Jesus who is mighty to save. But the best argument of all is to be found in the wounds of Jesus. You want to honor Jesus? You desire to put many crowns upon Jesus' head? And this you can best do by winning souls for Jesus. These are the spoils that Jesus covets. These are the trophies for which he fights. These are the jewels that shall be his best adornment. Spurgeon's exhortation for each of us to be soul winners. Is there really any greater task among men or women than to pour out our lives on behalf of others to save souls? Now, I'm not suggesting that we all have to leave our jobs. Well, gee whiz, I work at a factory. Whose soul am I saving at a factory? Well, gee whiz, I'm a school teacher, you know, at a public school. Whose soul am I winning at a public school? And things like that. I'm not suggesting that we all have to go to the mission field or that we all have to quit our jobs and join the ministry or something like that. Now, the Lord might call you to that, and I hope he does. I hope the Lord calls many of us to leave our jobs here in America and go other parts of the world and win souls. And we're so sold out for him and winning souls that he puts many of us out on the mission field. But more than likely, this is what I expect is going to happen. The Lord's going to keep you right where you're at. And he's going to tell you to flourish there and to win many souls there in the place where you currently have a sphere of influence. Again, to quote Arnaud, he says, it should be the life work of the one to win others, W-O-N, the life work of those that have been won to win other people. And whether that's on the mission field or in the local church or in your role as a business person or as a concerned member of the community in which you live, wherever it is that you find yourself, it is your privilege if you yourself have been won by the love of God 
and the grace of God has been shed abroad into your heart, it is your privilege to go and to share that with another person so that they too might know salvation. Now, this idea of a soul one naturally suggests, apparently not that natural, a soul that is lost. So the idea that there are souls that can be one that means that there are souls that will be lost. And in the same context of John chapter 3:16 that God so loved the world, in the same context of that verse, we have these words by the Lord, which says this, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on that person. Now, in the nice comfortable environment of the United States and of our communities that we live in, in the nice, comfortable environment of America, I tend to forget the reality that he who has the Son has life, he who does not have the Son of God does not have life, and the wrath of God remains on him. I forget, to, I forget the reality of that verse. If we really believed, if I really believed that all around me are men and women and young people that are lost and remain under God's wrath, if I really believe that, I believe that my intensity to reach the lost would be magnified exponentially. And I suspect many of you believe that as well. That if we truly believe this idea that there are people that we are interacting with, that should they die this day, or should they continue on living their lives as they're living their lives and come to the end of their days 40 years from now, that when they die, they will go into a Christless eternity and the wrath of God will continue to remain on them. So let me say this. If you have very little concern, if any at all, for those that are lost, would you ask God to increase that concern? That's all I'm asking. I'm not saying this. This is not what I'm saying. If you really loved other people, if you really believed, that, etc then you would leave this place and this week you'd witness to five people. I'm not even suggesting that. And I think when we put little external kind of rules on that, I got to witness to five people before the end of the day, I I think our heart loses what our hearts are supposed to be. But here's what I am going to ask of you. And this is what I'm asking of myself. Lord, would you give me a heart for the lost? Would you increase my concern for those that are living amongst me that don't know the Lord? and that the wrath of God continues to remain on them. Would you just simply ask God to begin to change your heart for those that don't know him? Imagine if 200 people begin to cry out for God to do that work within our hearts, what sort of impact that will have on our community in a year and in five years and in 25 years before many of us come to the end of our days? What sort of impact will that have? And so that's what I'm asking God to do in me. And I would ask for each of you, ask God to increase your level of concern for those that have yet been forgiven of their sins. As we do that, I think the Lord will do a great work within each of us. One final verse this morning, verse 31. It says, if the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner. King James writes it this way. Behold, the righteous shall be recompensed in the earth, much more the wicked and the sinner. And I draw your attention to that because five times in the book, uh, no, I'm sorry, this one time, this is the only time in the book of Proverbs, this word behold is used. And the word behold in the King James, it was essentially like stop everything and listen to what I have to say. 
And so this was the one time in all of the book of Proverbs where Solomon says, stop everything and listen to what I'm about to say. He goes on, he says, the righteous shall be recompensed in the earth, how much more so the wicked and the sinner. Now there's a couple different ways people look at this particular verse, understand this verse. One is simply this, that the Lord is a debtor to no man. And we know that's true. That's why some people look at this verse in this particular way. You recall in Jesus' interactions with his disciples, his disciples came to him. He said, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. And Jesus responded to them, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive back a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers, sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and also will receive in the age to come. And again, the idea is that the Lord is a debtor to no man. And so that's one way perhaps that this verse can be understood. In the context of our passage today, we remind ourselves that as we pour out our lives to win other people to Christ, as we give of our resources and of our time generously to other people, as we sow righteousness and delight ourselves in God and in his ways, in the context, this verse here might be saying to us simply this, that the Lord promises to return blessing beyond what that person could ever ask or imagine. That as we invest our lives in small ways, the Lord brings a return on that investment, as it says there in the New Testament passage, a hundredfold. Again, because the Lord will be a debtor to no man. That's one way that this verse can be understood. A second way people understand this verse, which I think is equally true, and so both of these could certainly be correct, is simply this, read it this way, that if even the righteous are held accountable for their misdeeds on the earth, how much more so the wicked and the sinner? That's a different direction altogether, but it's still equally true. Moses, for instance, a righteous man, suffered the consequences by being forbidden to enter into the promised land because of his misdeed that we read about there uh, in the scriptures, where he struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock, and he misrepresented God, and he suffered the consequences for doing so. David, the man the Bible calls the man after God's own heart, experienced the consequences of his sin, both in his sin with Bathsheba and in his sin of numbering the people and taking the census. And he experienced the consequences of those two actions. You have, you have two men of God who nevertheless experienced the repercussions of their sin. And if these two men of God, some suggest this verse means, if these two men of God experienced the repercussions of their sin on the earth, how much more so the one who stands continually opposed to God, the one who is wicked, the sinner, as the Bible calls him. And so simply then this verse, it serves as a warning primarily to the unbeliever. If the righteous will be judged for their sin, how much more so the sinner? And if you are here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you're the sinner. That's what it's referring to, you. You say, oh, it offends me. If I was a doctor and told you you had cancer, would you be angry with me? Would you be offended with me? Or would you thank me for sharing the truth with you so you could try and do, go do something about it? Our sin separates us from a holy God. And Jesus Christ is the only answer for our sin problem. If you do not yet know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to get right with him, and you need to do so today. You put it off another day, your heart hardens over, you'll never want to get right with him. 
You put it off another day. You get hit by a bus as you leave this place. You'll never have an opportunity to get right with him. Today is a day of salvation. If even the righteous are judged for their sin, how much more so the sinner? Amen. I'll leave you with that. Father, we thank you for the word of God, that it is true, that we can trust it, that there's no other resource that we can sit ourselves under and know that this word has the words of eternal life. And Father, to be able to sit here, to gather, to consider is a gift. Lord, we know that there are believers right now around the world that do not have the freedom to do what we are doing. Lord, we even know there are believers around the world who do not have the resources, the Bible, to be able to sit down and do what we are doing. And so, Father, thank you for this gift. Help us not to take advantage of it like the leper that was healed. Lord, we want to return back to you and say thank you. And so thank you for your word. Lord, you have spoken to our hearts today, I'm sure, in a variety of different ways. Different verses spoke to different people with different magnitude. And we pray that you would take those things, that seed that has been sown, and you would allow it to go down into the deep places of our hearts, into that good soil that it might bear a hundredfold. And Lord, as we learn, if there are anything, if there is anything in our lives that would potentially choke out that fruitfulness that you would have for us, Lord, we want to put those things away. We want to fully submit ourselves to you and to your ways. And we believe that in doing that, you'll be honored, you'll be blessed. Lord, but that'll be a blessing on us as well. And we'll be living life as you would have us to live, the abundant life. And we pray our prayer today in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.